of Worship, your source for commentary and discussion on worship, theology, and culture. I'm your host, Dr. Jonathan Michael Jones. everybody. Welcome to the Act of Worship podcast. This is Dr. Jonathan Michael Jones here to discuss issues of worship, theology, and culture. Um, today I am diving into a sort of worship-related topic, and really specifically it really is a music-related topic, and I do want to make the distinction there so that um, uh, people do not continue to equate music with worship. The two are not the same, and more and more it is driving me crazy when people equate music with worship. Um, But I am talking about a music-related topic today, and uh, it's one I've thought about quite often, and and I, I am considering doing even more research on it. I want to talk to you about the characteristic of hymns. Uh, Many, uh, like me, grew up uh, in churches that sang hymns, and some of you did not. Some of you might uh, may, might not know many hymns. And I, I was recently asked what my church's hymn to contemporary congregational music ratio is, and um, I, I keep a running chart that I continuously update. So I knew the answer to that question, uh, but it, but it was very apparent to me at the time that the person asking this question did not understand the meaning of the word uh, the words hymn. And contemporary. Um, These are two words that I think people have a misunderstanding about, and most people would likely assume contemporary to mean a modern style, Uh, but the word contemporary does not necessarily mean a modern style. Um, It really denotes an era or a time frame. So if I were to ask um, who a contemporary of Mozart was, someone could respond with Haydn. They were contemporaries of each other. They lived in the same time or the same era. And uh, I could also say that Carrie Underwood is a contemporary of myself. And you could go beyond music and you could dive into other areas or even something completely unrelated. Um, I could say that, um, that, that... Pope, uh, Pope John Paul, who's already passed away. I could even say he was a contemporary of me because he lived in the same time and era. Uh, so to restate the question, I think it would be more appropriate to ask, what is your church's ratio of hymns to modern music? Um, but even then, we have to define a hymn. A hymn is a word that people don't understand as well. I will, I will let you know that my church is about an 88% hymn hymn-singing church. (laughs) There would probably be a lot of people in my church that would be surprised to hear that, but we sing about 88% hymns. At least that's what we've done in 2018 so far. Uh, But the problem many worship pastors might experience is not necessarily a lack of singing hymns, but which hymns they sing. Um, I take time to plan the worship services in my church. Now, now, um, I haven't always done that. Um, I, I, in the past, um, as I was going through college and even graduate school, um, I would usually just pick some songs that were uh, catchy songs that people liked, hymns even, um, 
that really had no connection whatsoever. They were just songs and hymns that people liked, and we would sing them and do a good job. wasn't bad, uh, but there was no connection, and, and I since then have matured in my thoughts about worship to the point where I, I see that worship is a dialogue between God and his people. It's a conversation. And so normally I try to find a theme or something that is running through that service that is very evident, whether it's love or grace or whatever it is, and it tells a story. And so I want everything to be connected. Now, when you're doing that and you're planning scripture readings and songs and hymns, it takes some time. Anybody can get up there and just throw some songs together, but it takes some time to plan it the way I've been planning it. Uh, Sometimes people don't realize what goes into that. Um, But many congregates have the wrong idea of what constitutes a hymn. So I have had people before say, um, we need to sing more hymns. Um, One time I had that, and 80% of the music we did that day was hymns. And I said that. I said 80% of the hymns, four out of five songs we did were hymns. What do you mean by that? I said, well, um, I just sing songs that we know and like. And first of all, how am I to know what that is? Um, But there are certain characteristics that hymns possess. And the age of a song doesn't um, define it as a hymn or not a hymn. And so uh, of the hymns my church sings, about 72% are what I refer to as timeless. And those would be the ones that um, you could probably, that are probably standards in most churches that sing hymns, most of them at least. And 28% are what I would call modern hymns. Uh, the, the timeless designation has to do with the age of the hymn and whether it is usually in my denomination's hymnal, uh, and it probably would be in other denominations' hymnals as well. And modern hymns are hymns written primarily in the last 15 years by living composers and cannot be found in most hymnals, but in some they can. I know the uh, 2008 Baptist hymnal has a lot of newer hymns. Uh, Keith and Kristen Getty's In Christ Alone for example. Um, my, in my role as a worship leader over the years, it's become clear to me that people do not know what a hymn is. And so a lot of people would assume that just because it's been written in the last 10 or 15 years, it is not a hymn. In Christ alone, for example, it is certainly a hymn and fits uh, the definition of a hymn in every way. Um, but there are people that would say that is a modern um, styled song and and Certainly, you could add some musical elements that would make hymns um, uh, sort of be in a modern style, but a hymn has certain characteristics. The Apostle Paul tells the Colossians to admonish one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs in Colossians 3.16. So there's a difference between hymns and other types of congregational music, and I don't, I don't intend here to delve into the, the biblical difference between these three categories. I've done that before, and I could give you some ideas, but I only want to talk about the characteristics of hymns in our context, not talking about the biblical word here. And so I'm going to do so by defining what a hymn is not first, and then I will define what it is, and there are characteristics unique to hymns, both sacred and secular. And that may shock you that I'm saying secular, but secular hymns have existed for centuries, uh, the tunes of which many of them have often also been utilized in Christian worship.
So let me talk about first what it is not, what a hymn is not. So to press against many people's preconceived notions, a hymn is disconnected from style, from age of composition, or even instrumentation. In other words, just because it's done with an organ does not mean it's a hymn. So hymns could be freshly composed in recent, recent years or even weeks, or they might be employed with the use of modern, modern inst- instrumentation, such as guitars and drums, rather than solely pianos and organs. So the ideas many people have of what a hymn is come from stereotypes. Um, when you consider a hymn writer, you might think of people like Isaac Watts, the uh, late 17th and early to mid 18th century hymn composer. He's often referred to as the godfather or the father of English hymnody. And so, the, but there are also modern hymn writers. I actually am a modern hymn writer myself. Uh, there are also people like Keith Getty and Matt Boswell who write the- theologically challenging, thought-provoking, and deep hymn texts. And so in such cases, we should rid ourselves of the thought that hymns are always old and always sung with organ accompaniment. So that's what a hymn is not. What a hymn is, let me get into these characteristics here. I have four characteristics I want to discuss, and, and maybe you could think of more um, but these are, I think, four primary characteristics of hymns that hopefully will bring some clarity to what a hymn is and how to define it. And these characteristics, I, I, I would caution you, and, and uh, these are not true 100% of the time, but they're doubtlessly exemplified in the overwhelming majority of hymns. So the first thing, first characteristic I want to give you is that a hymn is usually strophic. This might be a new term to some who are not musicians, but strophic form is a term used to describe the organization of a piece of music. Um, Some might argue that strophic form and hymn form are synonymous. In other words, hymns are stalwartly tied to strophic form. And so when we read music from a hymnal, an obvious realization that we see is the stanza designation. Uh, By the way, hymns, you would normally say stanzas instead of verses. (laughs) A lot of people don't know that, but hymns have stanzas, not verses. Um, But there are usually stanzas uh, throughout the hymn that that apply the same melody. And sometimes a refrain is added, but not always. Uh, But each stanza of text uses the same melody as the previous and the next. And so strophic form is common throughout most hymn compositions. And you can think of what I'm talking about. Uh, Victory in Jesus, for example. I heard an old, old story. Okay, that's the first stanza. Um, so you get into the second and, and third stanza. Um, da, 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 da. It's the exact same. And so uh, that, that's what I mean by strophic form. Certainly, victory in Jesus is one that adds a refrain. But um, nevertheless, each stanza uses the same um, tune, the same melody. So the first characteristic is, characteristic is that hymns are strophic. The second characteristic is that hymns are metrical. Um, I'm not just referring to musical meter. Um, if you're not a musician, what I mean by that is each measure or bar of music has a certain number of beats, three, four, whatever it is. That's not 
just what I'm talking about because there are some hymns that are unmetered. In other words, they have no uh, specific time signature. But what I'm talking about is textual meter. And the first book ever published in the United States uh, was called the Bay Psalm Book. And it's, it's not a hymnal, but it's sort of like it. it. It was a psalter. It's a collection of psalms designed for congregational singing. In the 17th century, when this psalter was published, uh, congregations would have known approximately 30 tunes, uh, and then they would set the texts of these psalms that were found in the Psalter, in the base psalm book, they would set those texts to these tunes that they knew. And so a textual meter, what this is, it's essentially a combination of the number of syllables in each line, uh, and it coincides with the musical phrases in the tune to which it's set. So in other words, you would have, say, six syllables or eight syllables per line. Well, there would be... Um, eight notes or moving parts, whatever you want to call them, to a musical phrase. So, for example, John Newton's Amazing Grace. Um, it has eight syllables in the first line of text. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound. Then six in the second. That saved a wretch like me. And then eight in the third. I once was lost, but now am found. And then six in the last. Was blind, but now I see. So the textual meter here would be 8686. That's the textual meter of Amazing Grace, and every stanza is 8686. You could take any other 8686 tune and interchange it with any other 8686 text, such as Amazing Grace. Um, and so for centuries, this was a common practice. It was particularly used in Protestant worship, but it's very common. Uh, I still do this in my own context. And there were, there were three primary meters employed during the era of the base psalm, uh, psalm book. There was common meter, which was 8686. That's amazing grace. There was long meter, which would be 8888. Um, um, it, nowadays, you have more meters. There's also short meter in that day. There was 6686. Uh, nowadays, you can go to the back of a hymnal and you could look up the metrical index of tunes and it would tell you, it would go through the list, 8888, 10101010101010, 10101010, 8787, there are many of them, and you could take any text that is 8787 or 8686, whatever it is, and set it to another tomb of the same metrical, um, the same textual meter. And so if, if a tune or a text has a metered pattern, this is a poetical thing, it could likely be a hymn and probably is. Third characteristic here is that hymns utilize hymnic language. I know <laughs> I'm using the word as part of the definition, but what I mean by hymnic language is a clear and unapologetic use of biblical and theological language. The tendency in modern music is to shy away from words and texts that might confuse unbelievers or new believers. And so, as a sensible means for gospel communication, there is nothing wrong with adapting language. I have no problem with that. But my caution would be that certain gospel-centered words exist in the text of Scripture because they are most appropriate and clear um, 
in theology. And so words like sanctification, propitiation, incarnate, Godhead, and triune, these words leave little room for doubt. Now, you may have to go look them up and see what they mean, but that's okay. You learn by asking, by seeking answers. A lot of times, if the words are too common, uh, we kind of uh, phase out and lose sight of the meaning of the text. And so while congregants, congregants might not be familiar with, with these words, and they may even need an explanation, these words offer teaching opportunities for both the worship, worship leader and the congregation. And so many modern hymn writers do not avoid using such words, but they use them abundantly. Let me give you an example. One of my favorite modern hymn writers is Matt Boswell. Um, one hymn that we do at our church is his Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery. Listen to the text of this. Come behold the wondrous mystery. He, the perfect Son of Man, in his living, in his suffering, never trace nor stain of sin. See the true and better Adam come to save the hell-bound man. Christ, the great and sure fulfillment of the law, in him we stand. At first glance, someone might not understand the concept of Christ as the true and better Adam, but this language creates a wonderful teaching moment where through the text, a worship leader can discuss the fact that just as sin entered humanity through Adam, righteousness entered God's people through Jesus Christ. And using such language can be indicative of a hymn. So hymnic language is another characteristic. The last characteristic I want to talk to you about is that hymns usually have easily singable melodies. Um, it probably wouldn't take much to think of a hymn with a uh, com comparatively difficult melody or range. Um, I could think of a few right off the top of my head, because uh, there are hymns that some of the melodies are quite challenging and the range is quite challenging. But this is the exception rather than the rule. And since most congregants are not trained musicians, hymns are designed for easy use in corporate worship. And so related to metered text and musical phrases, hymns often have similar lines. There's commonly a striking similarity usually between the first and second lines and then the third line usually deviates from the contour. Usually, sometimes it rises in pitch. And then the fourth line is often precisely the same as the second line. Let me give you an example. The, the hymn that I just told you about, Matt Boswell's Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery. So the first line, Come behold the wondrous mystery, he the perfect son of man. So that's the first line. Now listen to how similar the second line is, but you will notice at the end of the line it, it deviates a little bit. In his living, in his suffering, never trace nor stain of sin. So that's, you notice how similar those two lines are, but the second one deviates a little bit. The third line will deviate completely, and it'll rise in pitch a little bit. See the true and better Adam come to save the hell-bound man. So you can tell different than the other lines. Now listen to the fourth line. It will be almost it will be identical to the second line. 
Christ the great and sure fulfillment of the law in him we stand. So you could see how a congregation would find this very easy to catch on to because it is an is a very easily singable melody. Another example is Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. The first and second lines are exactly the same. Come thou fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing. Call for songs of loudest praise. Exactly the same. Third line, teach me some melodious sonnet sung by flaming tongues above. And then the fourth line, exactly the same again. Praise the mountain fixed upon it, mount of thy redeeming love. It's, it's exactly the same. These are very singable uh, melodies. Um. So writing the music in this way allows congregants to understand and sing the melody quite quickly. I find that when I am teaching a new hymn to my congregation, they often learn it much faster than they do some of the modern uh, contemporary Christian music that is out there. Um, I use that term again, contemporary, the modern Christian music that's out there, where a modern song might take two or three times for a congregation to feel as though they know it well enough to sing confidently. A hymn could be understood by the congregation after hearing maybe just the first stanza. Um, and I do find that for most songs, not hymns, but songs, um, it usually does take two or three times before they start getting it in their head. But I would also suggest this, and I've done this before in another pl- uh, podcast, Apply the text of a new hymn to an already familiar tune. I do that often when I write new hymns. I will take the text and set it to a new tune. So when the new tune is introduced, the congregation already has some experience with the hymn. Um, The easily singable melody, though, is a striking characteristic of hymns. It saddens me that churches neglect hymn singing in corporate worship. There's a great value in singing hymns, not only musically, but I think also theologically. And while congregational music should not be Christians' primary source of theological teaching, frequently and subconsciously it is. Worship leaders should take seriously the call to not only lead congregational singing, but also to aid in the spiritual formation of worshipers. Hymns are an excellent tool for corporate worship, theologically and pragmatically. And so the utilitarian use of hymns allows congregants to sing and thus learn deep theological truths in in a bold manner. Uh, The characteristics that I've given you here really should shed light on what a hymn is and what it is not. And so hopefully some of these preconceived notions go away. And with these characteristics... You might realize that, hey, my church sings more hymns than I thought. Maybe you're doing some um, newer hymns. Um, there, there are, I think, more younger artists that are writing in a hymnic fashion. Um, and, and my hope and prayer is that it increases. Um, and so there are a plurality, there is a plurality of ways and styles to sing and play hymns. It doesn't have to be done with just organs. It could be done with modern instrumentation. And so with that in mind, it's probably wise to consider hymns as an even more 
uh, important part of a church's worship experience and it's as part of their musical formation and, and, and part of their spiritual formation. And yes, I did say musical formation. There's nothing wrong with helping a congregation musically. So hopefully this clarifies some things about hymns. I love hymns. In fact, I would rather sing hymns than anything in, um, in corporate worship. I love uh, hymns. And um, uh, so hopefully as, as you're singing, you can listen to the music you're singing and hear it and, and think about these characteristics and, and say, you know what? I think that's a hymn. <laughs> um, hymns are a wonderful tool for corporate worship. Thanks for listening. This is Dr. Jonathan Michael Jones. Did it, did it.